Right. Okay. So this is called uh, the real psychology of policymaking uh, for the MPP three module uh, week two. Okay. Uh, oh, now I've written down. I need to make a joke either about old timey tapes or cliffhangers, right? Because I'm going to record this in two parts, right? So. Okay, if, if you imagine everyone is really beaming at the, the joke about the old timey tapes. Uh, okay, so we've got three questions. What is the difference between comprehensive and bounded rationality? How do policy actors deal with bounded rationality? So that'll be part one. And we'll come back to the third, the third question. How can we use these insights to explain Policy change and case studies using policy theory. So we'll talk. I'll, I'll record that uh, later on. Okay. So the difference between comprehensive and bounded rationality. So I reckon you can you can just list those quite simply in a table. And in fact, I've really just copy and pasted uh, the blog I did on this, kind of thousand words on on this, to make a kind of simple distinction between comprehensive and bounded rationality. So <coughs> with comprehensive, you've got this general idea: that elected policymakers translate their values into policy in a straightforward manner. With, and with bounded, uh, you would say, their ability to make and implement decisions is much more problematic. So we're looking for the, the distinctions uh, according to categories. First category, with comprehensive, is that they have a clear, coherent, and rank-ordered set of policy preferences which mutual organisations carry out on their behalf. And with bounded, you say they have often unclear, multiple often unclear objectives that are difficult to rank in any meaningful way. Okay, so a big distinction between between the setup. With comprehensive, you say we can separate policymaker values from organizational facts. With bounded, you say uh, there is no way to separate values from facts. Uh, with comprehensive, you say there are clear-cut and well-ordered stages to the policy process in which you can identify aims the means to achieve them, and then you select one. With bounded rationality, you'd say you wonder if policy process can be so ordered and linear, or in some cases, you identify a tendency for policymakers to select a solution that existed before a problem. With comprehensive, uh, you see analysis of the policymaking context is comprehensive, whereas with bounded, you know, the key point is policymakers and organisations have limited knowledge and research capabilities. So they have to use shortcuts to gather a limited amount of time, limited amount of information in a, in a, in a short amount of time. So individuals use cognitive shortcuts. Organisations use some kind of equivalent. You know, they have rules, standard operating procedures that, uh, that they use to focus their attention on a small amount of information. With comprehensive, you say this allows policymakers to maximise the benefits of policy to society in the same way that an, an individual might maximise their own utility in economics. And uh, bounded, you say that uh, you, know, you, you cannot hope to seek that kind of alleged perfection, but you, you achieve something that's good enough. So Herbert Simon says we don't maximise, we, we satisfy, or something like that. Okay, so there's a nice relatively simple way to distinct to distinguish between those and most policy theories focus on the you know trying to use insights about policy uh, or uh, bounded rationality to explain how people act within the policy process now i think it used to be simple to go from there 
to studies of the policy process because you would uh, segue really neatly to descriptions of incrementalism. Uh, there's a nice neat story linking bounded rationality to incrementalism. And, and now things are, I think we have much more information about policy processes, but it means that our explanations are a little bit more complicated. Because, uh, you know, I, I would say, I mean, put simply in the past, uh, people like Herbert Simon and Charles Lindblom, they were still talking about people having a kind of goal-orientated strategy. They would say it's, a still a, it's still a rational process in which they're identifying goals and efficient ways to deal with them. So, for example, Lindblom would talk about, you know, phrases like simple incremental analysis, which would be the idea that uh, if you can't, uh, focus comprehensively on all issues, choose a small number and, and uh, research them comprehensively, you know, something like that. But it's more difficult, I think, to you know, come up with that kind of picture given that there are so many theories and concepts around. Okay, so we can separate them into two things. You know, one is the, the bounded rationality part and the other is the policy process part. Okay, so when we talk about uh, the bounded rationality part, uh, we can start with the kind of general language of psychology that has infused policy studies just as it has infused most social sciences. Okay, And we talked a little bit about the positive or negative ways in which people describe these cognitive shortcuts or heuristics. Uh, so if you're describing them relatively negatively, you would tend to use the language of cognitive biases that limit attention in some kind of bad way. Okay, and, and I would look out for the language that, that people would use. So I'll give you some examples. Uh, so people are vulnerable to framing effects. So if you, you can influence the way they think about problems with relation to the ways in which you, you present those problems. Or people see uh, vivid events as more representative of reality than they truly are. So, for example, they might pay more attention to, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, crises in their own countries, you know, because they experience them more strongly. Or people sum up entire social groups with reference to very few people within those groups. Or they value losses more than gains, even when the, the value of the product is equal. Uh, they see patterns because of a need for coherence, you know, rather than those patterns existing. They have unrealistic hopes for the things to which they commit, or people in groups converge towards so-called groupthink, or people's anxiety causes them to act irrationally, or something like that. There's a whole list of ways in which people describe cognitive shortcuts negatively. And it often, I think, prompts this... Um, distinction between the so-called rational and the so-called irrational. And I should say, uh, with, with a colleague, uh, we wrote an article that made this rational-irrational distinction. And we always used those scare quotes, which we uh, hoped people would take to mean that these are not our words and we challenge them. Okay, but as it turns out, that's not what uh, kind of the feedback we got was that that distinction wasn't particularly clear. But I think it's worth noting that people tend to identify so-called rational and irrational ways of processing information, and they tack quite well onto you know Kahneman's famous distinction between 
system one and system two. You know, one of them is you deal with, uh, you give very little attention to issues and you make very quick choices. Another is you, you give far more resources to them and you make kind of slower, more considered choices. And I think often the shortcut is to call one of them rational and the other irrational. Uh, but I think there's, there are three good reasons to avoid thinking in those terms. Uh, the first is, I think, these terms often have a kind of a sexist and a racist history. You know, they assign rationality to some people and irrationality to other people. And I think for that reason alone, they're, they're, they're problematic. Uh, the second reason why I wouldn't uh, put too much faith in the distinction is that uh, if you look at kind of summaries of psychology, uh, summaries of studies, and you ask, what, what does it all add up to? They still say something like uh, mental processes are some mix of cognition and emotion. But it's hard to separate them and we don't know what that mix is or something like that. Uh, so, uh, you know, they're very separable analytically. But in practice, you know, it, it's, it's, it's really problematic to try and, uh, you know, assign irrational or irrational to people. You can do it, but, you know, I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, the third thing is you can describe these things far more positively. So Gigerenza, for example, uses the word heuristics or fast and frugal heuristics. And it's much more about how people can adapt to their environments efficiently, uh, given the, the tools at their disposal. Okay, and I think one of his examples, my favourite example is, um, is love, uh, which is uh, a very efficient means to decide if you should look after your family members or not. Much more effective than a cost-benefit analysis. You know, if you ask yourself, uh, should I look after my dependents today? Then love, or the emotion of love, is a very efficient way of, of making that choice. You can do it instantly. Uh, and, you know, it, it's kind of notionally an irrational way of thinking, but it's a very positive, uh, efficient, productive way of, of uh, adapting a cognitive shortcut. Okay, now for our purposes, uh, the question is, how do policy theories talk about these kind of cognitive uh, shortcuts? And I think the thing that I'd like us to focus on throughout the semester is that almost all policy theories describe bounded rationality to start with, but they usually describe a different aspect of how people respond to it. So I'll give you some examples before we pause. The first one, uh, I think you would associate with punctuated equilibrium theory. And in a nutshell, they say that policymakers can only pay attention to a tiny proportion of their responsibilities and their associated organisations struggle to process all policy relevant information. So they prioritise some issues and they ignore the rest, or they prioritise a very small number and ignore almost all of them. So I think you, know, you can sum up with a phrase like, almost everyone involved in the policy process ignores almost all information almost all of the time. Okay. And so what they are asking you to focus on is levels of attention and lurches of attention. You know, I think if you look at uh, punctuated equilibrium, almost all of the measures are of, are of attention. And the explanation comes from intense periods of attention to some things over others. Okay. Then a second uh, 
response to boundary rationality is to say that some ways of understanding and describing the world tend to dominate policy debate, and those kind of dominant ideas help some actors and they marginalise others. So that is a focus on ideas and uh, the power to decide whose ideas matter. You know, so it's still a focus on bounded rationality, but it's, it's a very much a different focus on how people act and uh, how you study it. Okay, the, with, with punctuated equilibrium, it was about a kind of relatively visible lurch of attention. When you focus on power and ideas, it's a much more taken for granted dominance of certain ways of thinking that don't change. Yeah, so one efficient response to bounded rationality is to maintain the same understanding of the world uh, for a long time, okay? which, is a, which is an efficient way of dealing with the world, but it tends to benefit some people and um, marginalise others. Okay, the third example would be, uh, if you imagine uh, policy actors see the world through the, the lens of their beliefs. So they use their beliefs to interpret the world. Those beliefs allow them to select and interpret policy relevant information. And those beliefs help them decide who to trust. So if you look at things like the Advocacy Coalition framework, they're asking themselves uh, how people use their beliefs to understand the world and how they use those beliefs to help form coalitions with people who share their beliefs. So again, you know, the same kind of idea about boundary rationality, but very different focus on what people do. Okay. Next example would be the idea that uh, policy actors engage in what we often call trial and error strategies, or Mark Lubell uh, describes as their social tribal instincts uh, and in both of those cases the idea is that people are using heuristics to understand the world and to help them collaborate in complex systems you know so lots of studies of complex systems and collaboration across multiple sectors or multiple levels of policymaker or, or within government and without government and they're talking about People using a particular lens to understand the world, work out who to cooperate with, and then subjecting their strategies to some kind of evaluation to see if they're working. Okay. Uh, the next example, I wonder how many more there are. Four. Uh, so the next example is uh, to focus on stories or narratives. So you say policy audiences are vulnerable to manipulation when they rely on other actors to help them understand the world. Those actors tell simple stories to persuade their audience to see a policy problem and its solution in a particular way. Okay, so that is a focus on the role of narratives in the policy process. What is it, uh, uh, what, what sort of um, structure can you identify in a narrative and which narratives are more effective than others? Okay. Next example uh, is, is a focus on social construction. And you would say policymakers draw on quick and emotional judgments based on social stereotypes uh, to propose that some people deserve government punishments and some people deserve government benefits. So you're focusing on the ways in which people use uh, moral, emotional judgments to identify uh, Targeted, uh, target populations as positive or negative, and then looking to see how that characterization affects
public policy and policy design. Okay, uh, two more examples. Uh, the penultimate example was a focus on institutions. So institutions are the formal rules and the informal understandings that help shape the ways in which people understand the world. And Eleanor Ostrom would describe the informal understandings uh, that exist in the minds of participants and are sometimes shared as implicit knowledge rather than an explicit and written form. So you can imagine some of the ways in which people deal with bounded rationality are to write down and prescribe certain rules of behaviour so that people don't have to keep going back to first principles. But a lot of ways in which they communicate are through these informal understandings that are only shared, um, uh, you know, sort of, um, if they're shared at all, they're not written down, they're shared informally between people through collaboration, for example. So one way of dealing with bounded rationality is to create rules, but most of those rules are not written down. So there's a huge amount of study of public policy which is trying to work out what are the rules within organisations. And the final example for now would be policy learning. So it's a general concept to describe a political process in which actors engage selectively with information rather than some kind of rational search for truth. So, uh, so for example, uh, Claire Dunlop and Claudio Radielli focus on four different ways that, that people cooperate to learn. So one of them is epistemic, where uh, this is about um, policy makers learning from experts. Or you have bargaining, where people are essentially learning how to gain advantage within a political system. Or you have reflective learning, in which people are sharing their own views without their being recognized experts. And then there's a learning through hierarchy where, for example, central governments are learning the extent to which they can prescribe the behavior of subnational governments, something like that. So I, mean, I think the point so far is that these are all ways in which you can use a simple concept of bounded rationality to understand and focus on how people behave within political systems.